I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, a heroic homecoming. President Joe Biden stands with the grieving families during the dignified transfer of three service members killed in a drone strike in Jordan. Pushing south, Israel's offensive shifts to Rafah after claiming it dismantled Hamas in Khan Yunus. But it comes with a high price, more than 100 deaths in 24 hours. Poised to strike, new details on the oncoming cyber threat from China. We're on Capitol Hill. And party in Punxsutawney. News from our favorite groundhog and his little-known connection to Catholic tradition. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord. Some breaking news tonight out of the Middle East. Sources say the United States has begun its retaliation for the recent deaths of three U.S. troops in Jordan. A wave of airstrikes is targeting militants in Iraq and in Syria and there have been casualties. Meantime, President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden attended a dignified transfer to honor the three American service members killed in that drone strike in Jordan on Sunday. And today, their remains return to U.S. soil in flag-draped transfer cases. The President and First Lady also meeting today in private with the families of those fallen soldiers. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen? Tracy, President Joe Biden, the First Lady, and top military officials joined grieving families at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. The service members killed Sunday were all from Georgia. Earlier, President Biden called the three U.S. Army Reserve soldiers unwavering in their bravery and unflinching in their duty. At Dover Air Force Base, three American soldiers killed in action in the Middle East come home to their final resting place. President Joe Biden did not speak at the transfer, but at Thursday's national prayer breakfast at the Capitol, he spoke their names and honored their military service. Our prayers continue to be with the families of the three American servicemen killed and attacked in the FOB in Jordan. Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Brianna Moffitt, and Specialist Kennedy Sanders. The three came from different corners of Georgia, but were brought together in the same company of Army engineers. Rivers, 46 years old, served a nine-month tour in Iraq in 2018. Moffitt, just 23, also worked for a home care provider cooking, cleaning, and running errands for people with disabilities. And Sanders, just 24 years old, worked at a pharmacy while starting to become an x-ray technician and coached children's soccer and basketball. The president said... They risked it all. And we'll never forget the sacrifices and service to our country that the dozens of service members who were wounded and are recovering now. More than 40 troops were injured in the drone attack at Tower 22, a secretive U.S. military desert outpost whose location allows U.S. forces to infiltrate and quietly leave Syria. And earlier this week, the parents of Kennedy Sanders remembered their daughter, calling her a free spirit, her personality contagious, always laughing and smiling. So I just want people to remember that, you know, even though her time was short on earth, she lived her life to the fullest and she enjoyed her life in any situation that she was in. She made it enjoyable, even being deployed. She found different things to do to um, pass her time. 
Now, Sanders and Moffat were both posthumously promoted to sergeant rank. And also tonight, the U.S. has bolstered the defenses in place to protect the 350 troops at that base in Jordan that was attacked earlier this week by Iran-backed militants. And the enemy drone, by the way, was fired from Iraq. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will head to the region this weekend for the fifth time since the conflict began. His visit comes as Israel's defense minister signaled today that the army could push towards Gaza's southernmost city, Rafah. This following the claim to have dismantled Hamas in Khan Yunus after weeks of heavy fighting and regular strikes. The Hamas-controlled health ministry in Gaza said today that 112 people have been killed by Israeli military action in the most recent 24-hour period and 148 injured. There is great concern over Israel's push south. Half of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians are sheltering in Rafah. One U.N. spokesman described the border city as a pressure cooker of despair. There's simply not enough food, there's not enough uh, clean drinking water, uh, and there's no protection. We're, nobody is, is, is guaranteed uh, from, the, from the next uh, kind of wave of fighting that, that we fear is, is, is coming on. Um, it's like every week we think, we've, you know, it can't get any worse. Well, go figure, it gets worse. Across the border from Gaza, a Christian organization with deep roots in Israel is serving those most devastated by Hamas. Passages is a Christian organization. In the past 10 years, it has sent more than 11,000 students on leadership pilgrimages to Israel. Recently, it sent around two dozen staff and alumni to Israel to present $500,000 worth of relief funds. They also visited the site of the October 7th terror attack. And joining us now to discuss this life-changing trip is Scott Phillips. Scott, thank you so much for being here today. So tell us about your biggest takeaway from your time in Israel. Sure. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Uh, yes, we did have an opportunity to go stand in solidarity with our friends in Israel and visit two particular communities that our 11,000, all of our 11,000 um, uh, alumni of the program who visited Israel with passages have visited. And we were able to see the devastation. We were able to hear, hear the stories of the people who lost loved ones, lost friends, lost neighbors, uh, those who uh, still have loved ones uh, uh, taken hostage in, in Gaza. Um, one of the things that we were able to do was to fundraise for, since October 7th, uh, about $500,000 and splitting that between these two communities, which we have deep relationships with. And so I think one of the big takeaways is that uh, you know, uh, the people that we talked to said, it's not obvious that you're here, um, meaning it's not obvious that Christians would come here, that you would raise funds, that Christians would give funds to help these communities rebuild. And so when Jewish people all over the world are feeling incredibly alone right now, it was really a blessing, really a blessing to be able to to be in Israel and to um, really be, you know, the hands and feet of of Christ. Scott, what was the reaction uh, from the community regarding those relief funds that you gave them? Well, it, one, of, one of the communities uh, said that we were the, the first Christian organization uh, to provide funds uh, to the community. And so that really is just a blessing uh, to us, to our donors, our partners, our alumni who gave. And uh, so, so, so it was really um, 
uh, I, I think that they they were shocked to see that that we would come. A, we're not Jewish. B, we're Americans. Um, that we would come to Israel during this time and stand with them. Scott, what's the mood over there right now? Uh, what did you kind of pick up on? I think it's uh, it, it's it's complex. Um, in one, you know, in, in one case, Israel is still frozen uh, in October 7th um, because there are still hostages, over 130 hostages still held in Gaza. On the other hand, um, Israelis are resilient. The people that live in Israel are resilient and they are uh, they came together. They unified very quickly. And uh, Israel and I think the Jewish people worldwide uh, are known for their resilience um, and and I think you know Israel is uh, a, a a place that that has those unique ingredients: um, devastation, uh, mourning, the same time resilient and hopeful for the future. Yeah. Before I let you go, um, you know, I touch on this. You know, oftentimes we as Americans feel so far removed from the Middle East, but you know, what do you think we can do to show our support for Israel during this time of recovery? I think that as Christians, uh, one of the things that we can do to show support for Israel um, is actually here at home. Um, there are many American Jews uh, here in the United States well, and around the world who feel very alone because they are tied uh, to Israel. Israel is the, the only Jewish state um, with anti-Semitism rising um, uh, over 400 percent since October 7th. Uh, one of the things that we can do is to show our Jewish neighbors, our Jewish friends, that they are not alone, that Christians do stand with them, uh, and that we're we're here for them. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for what you do. We appreciate it. God bless you. Thanks. You too. A new warning tonight about China's Communist Party targeting U.S. infrastructure. Just how vulnerable are those systems? A House panel heard about increasing cyber threats and whether the U.S. can effectively combat them. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales reports. Well, good evening, Tracy. Yes, the news is alarming. From water treatment plants to oil and gas pipelines to even electrical grids and our cell phones, all of them are at risk. FBI Director Christopher Wray told lawmakers at a hearing on the House Subcommittee on China that Chinese hackers are infiltrating our computer networks. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike. Congressman Mike Gallagher, who chairs the subcommittee, agrees. The sole purpose is to be ready to destroy American infrastructure, which would inevitably result in chaos, confusion, and potentially mass casualties. It's outrageous. Imagine not one pipeline, but many pipelines disrupted. Uh, telecommunications going down so people can't use their cell phone. People start getting sick from polluted water. Trains get derailed. Air traffic control system, port control systems are malfunctioning. This is truly an everything, everywhere, all at once scenario. 
Just this week, the FBI disrupted the KV botnet used by Chinese hackers to target U.S.-based critical infrastructure organizations. Experts say the CCP has been preparing for decades to challenge the U.S. It really prefers to use so-called gray zone tactics and azimetric warfare, uh, sort of striking in ways that have plausible deniability. He adds the U.S. must ramp up its investments in high-tech and counterintelligence and upgrade its hardware and infrastructure. There need to be more sanctions on outbound investment, uh, preventing American money from funding research into Chinese espionage, cyber attacks and military. There needs to be, um, I think, stricter controls also of Chinese activities and what uh, we are seeing sort of uh, in terms of cyber attacks, gray zone uh, operations and influence operations, uh, even uh, also on United States soil. We do want to let you know that Congress is working on a number of bills, one of which would combat China's global influence by forcing companies wishing to sell sensitive items overseas to prove that their products do not pose a risk to American interests. Another targets Chinese foreigners from buying U.S. ag land near sensitive sites like military bases. And another seeks to limit the Chinese government's access to conducting research at our universities. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including pro-lifers and prison. New developments after a handful of people fighting for the unborn are found guilty of federal charges in Tennessee. And the heart of the church, why a phrase from one of the most beloved figures in church history still rings true today. Tesla is recalling nearly all the vehicles it has sold in the United States because some warning lights on the instrument panel are too small. Some cars involved in the recall were built in 2012. The NTSB announced the recall due to warning lights on the cars having a smaller font size than what is required by federal safety standards. Tesla has already started releasing the software update required to fix the font size. On developments tonight, Ian, the six pro-lifers in Tennessee found guilty earlier this week of violating the FACE Act. Their attorneys are expected to file an appeal. Immediately after the guilty verdict, the pro-lifers and their families gathered in front of the courthouse to pray and sing hymns together. The pro-lifers face up to 11 years in prison. They are set to be sentenced in July. For analysis, we turn now to Stephen Crampton, senior counsel for the Thomas More Society, who is representing one of the pro-lifers in the case. Stephen, great to be with you today. We appreciate it. Um, a lot to talk about. But first, how is your client holding up during this difficult time? Tracy, it's really amazing. Uh, he is still praising God, saying that uh, where the Lord leads him, he will go. So he says maybe there's a ministry for him in the jail. Time will tell. We hope that never has to uh, come about. We're uh, hopeful that our appeal will be successful and perhaps that the judge will see through the political nature of these uh, prosecutions, which really amount more to persecution in our view than prosecution, and maybe not even sentence him to time in jail, but time will tell. Yeah, and for those who, who may not remember, um, can you tell us about the incident that took place back in 2021 that led to the arrest of the six pro-lifers? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Thank you. Uh, this is, we're talking March 2021. 
And what happened was a uh, group of pro-life folk from uh, various walks and various states entered into this medical facility building where it was open to the public, uh, where the abortion clinic was located on the second floor. Some of them, a few, actually sat down in front of the door of the clinic, but most, like Paul Vaughn, my client, uh, was they were out in the hallway, they were singing, they were praying, they spoke to a couple of abortion-minded women. Uh, Paul himself interacted at some length with the police and actually helped defuse an otherwise pretty tense situation. Turns out the local police had never encountered a pro-life protest before, so they really didn't know what to expect. And Paul was able to help them resolve this matter in an entirely peaceful way. Well, as you know, in uh, June 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe against Wade, and the Biden administration effectively declared war on pro-lifers. So a year and a half after this event, they send uh, armed FBI agents in great number out to Paul's home in the middle of uh, rural Middle Tennessee and banged on the door, drew their guns on him and arrested him and took him away and charged him with the face violation that we went to trial on this last week. Mm. Well, tell us exactly where we are right now in this case and what comes next. Yeah, um, Paul is still out on his own recognizance, uh, thankfully. The sentencing is set for July the 2nd, so we have a little time before then. And after that, we fully intend to appeal and argue uh, several legal issues as well as some factual ones including um, our contention that the FACE Act itself, Tracy, is unconstitutional, never should have been passed in the first place. But certainly after Roe was overturned, there's no longer an abortion interest, so-called federal right there, to be protected. And so what you have instead is this weird little provision that turns an otherwise everyday kind of sit-in event that is a uh, criminal misdemeanor on a local basis, into this major federal uh, production. And moreover, what you have here is what we believe is for the first time in the history of our nation, the federal government taking a felony conspiracy statute, so-called conspiracy against rights, and applying it against peaceful protesters like Paul Vaughn. That's where you get the 10 years and then it's only six months for the face violation itself. So this is a purely punitive mm. political persecution here. This is not about justice. This is about sending a terrorism kind of message to Paul Vaughn and other pro-lifers. Don't you dare mess with abortion. Well, Stephen, we're going to continue to follow this. Thank you so much for coming on and filling us in on all this. We really appreciate it. God bless. God bless you. Thanks for all y'all do. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, called to serve, the Vatican honors a particular group humbly helping communities for thousands of years. Plus, learn more about a shadowy figure in Pennsylvania and a beloved tradition's ties to the Catholic faith. Today is the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord. It is also the 28th World Day for Consecrated Life. Pope Francis celebrated Mass and highlighted the importance of perseverance. He also encouraged religious men and women to be open 
to the promptings by the Holy Spirit. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser has more on the history of the celebration. There are both. There are men and women who really devote their lives entirely to contemplation, prayer and adoration, who withdraw from the world to pray for the world and the church. The World Day for Prayer for Consecrated Life was instituted in 1997 by Pope St. John Paul II. It intends to highlight to the faithful those individuals who have chosen to follow Christ. They adhere to the three vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. Pope John Paul II wrote in his post-synodal apostolic exhortation Vita Consecrata, the religious life is at the very heart of the church and should be celebrated. Many communities have been founded to help people in schools, in hospitals, in missions, in development aid, in many areas of life. The Catholic Church celebrates, therefore, the World Day for Consecrated Life on February the 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, which is the day when the Blessed Mother presented her son in the temple and consecrated him to God. The day is a way of tuning out the distractions of the modern world and allows us to hear God's voice. By marking it, we thank God for the gift of consecrated life. It also calls attention to the role of the religious in our society and invites them to celebrate what the Lord has accomplished through them. This day is particularly important now as the numbers of vocations to consecrated life have declined worldwide. So we're all called to pray for new vocations, especially today. I always say that if you want to discern a vocation or if you want to go on a journey of discovery to find out what God has in store for you, then start praying. In Rome, Andreas Tonehauser and Matteo Chaffee, EWTN News Nightly. Finally tonight, it is Groundhog Day here in the U.S., and the famous rodent from Pennsylvania, Punxsutawney Phil, has spoken, so to speak. That's because after being summoned from his tree stump, Phil did not see his shadow. And that, according to folklore, means an early spring. But some locals want people to know the long-standing tradition in Gobbler's Knob is actually rooted in the Catholic faith. Hearing this, maybe they become curious like I was to kind of look at their own faith and, and look back and think about Groundhog Day other than a day of a bunch of people celebrating an animal. Well, the tradition actually harkens back to the Catholic celebration of Candlemas, or the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, on February 2nd. Farmers in medieval times would make predictions about the coming weather for their crops on Candlemas Day if there was sunlight or darkness. To learn more, tune in to EWTN News In-Depth tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern as correspondent Mark Irons takes a deep dive into this beloved tradition. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.